Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is parliamentarian and chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Tourism, Ms. Luciso Makubela Mashlele. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Doctor, and hello to the listeners, and thank you for having me on your program. We welcome your insights in the conversation today. To begin with, Parliament plays a vital role in democratic countries, whether it's approving government budgets to governments being able to provide services for their citizens to overseeing executive action and permitting public participation. Firstly, could you tell us more about the committee that you're responsible for? Okay, thank you, uh, Dr. I chair, I'm the chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Tourism. The Portfolio Committees of Parliament are established in terms of Section 57 of the Constitution of the Republic, which empowers the committee to play an oversight role, make legislation. So briefly, the Portfolio Committee is an extension of the National Assembly, so it becomes the engine of the work that is done in Parliament, which then is taken to the National Assembly for ratification and for adoption into the House, and it is, it's made revolutions of the House. So this portfolio committee looks into the affairs of the National Department of Tourism as, as well as its entity, South African Tourism. And in terms of the, the tasks and what the committee aims to achieve as being the, the engine and extension of the National Assembly, tell us a bit about some of the recommendations on the structure and programs that have been adopted by the Department of Tourism. Okay, since we, we came into office uh, in, the, in the fifth parliament from 2014, what the committee has done is that it made recommendations first to restructure the department because it felt that there were duplications of programs within the department as well as its entities. So that these are in line with the budget and we try to minimize costs and ensure that with the little budget that we have, we can maximize it and it can touch many aspects of tourism and also build tourism in the, within the same budget. We know that um, uh, tourism plays a vital role because it's, it has far-reaching uh, programs. So it's a labor-intensive environment within tourism, but its value chain cuts across many departments and many aspects. So for when tourism grows, all other industries grow, like your transport, uh, your infrastructure in terms of a municipality, in terms of ensuring that there's access to a tourism routes and so on. So when, when tourism grows, there's a lot of value chain because we know that within tourism, agriculture will provide the people that are touring with food, uh, transport will come in and transport them. You know, there are various value chain within the tourism space. But then uh, the... What we did as the portfolio committee, we ensured that we streamlined these 
and ensure that there's maximum uh, utilization of the budget that we have so that we can have focused programs. What we also did is we went and looked at the Tourism Act. It covers many issues and aspects of the growing economy. Since we know that there are now issues of Airbnbs, the fourth industrial revolution has come into action. We need to ensure that our regulations and the space that in the environment that we are regulating as legislators, we ensure that they comply with the various legislation and policies. They are in line with government policies. So ours was basically to ensure that we we make an an environment that is conducive for business to flourish. So the industry has got a tremendous knock-on effect, ripple effects, besides serving tourists that are coming into the country. It's also about enabling the businesses that support the those tourists. You've mentioned the impact that tourism has on the economy, and I'm going to quote a, a couple of, of stats that I, I read in a, a Fin24 article which projected that the sector would make up 9.4% of the country's GDP in 2017, equating to 412.2 billion rand in monetary terms. In 2016, the industry had accounted for 1.5 million jobs, employing 9.8% of the country's workforce. So either way you, you look at this, Tourism is contributing to almost 10% of our GDP, almost 10% of our workforce, which emphasizes how significant it is. In South Africa, we've got some iconic tourist attractions like the Big Five, Table Mountain, Vilakazi Street, etc. But there are some more sort of unique tourism initiatives that have been developed, which allow tourists to start experiencing South African culture through township or rural tourism, which again has that multiplier effect, economically benefiting sectors of society, which previously hadn't been serious contenders for tourism. So could you take us through and explain a little bit more in terms of the benefits and opportunities of township and rural tourism? The World Travel Organization says that each and every tourist uh, visiting a country would want to engage on cultural or heritage tourism. And that in itself presents an opportunity for us to develop the tourism products within townships so that we, we, we ensure that the tourists visiting townships and the rural areas, they have, a, a product to vi- they have products to visit. and experience what ordinary South Africans do for a living, how they live, the food they eat, and how they interact between the various cultures within South Africa. And this in itself presents our townships, which were previously a disadvantage because the racial uh, spatial patterns ensured that they they are not uh, properly established the infrastructure there is not as huge as it would be in cities and big towns. But then with this new aspect of township and rural tourism, municipalities within their local economic development uh, programs and strategies are developing tourism products. 
because when, when visitors visit a township, they want to be in a safe environment. They want to also experience the culture. They want to go to our Shisanyama, which is a South African uh, cuisine where we make a braai. It's, it's just a barbecue. But they want to eat the food that we eat. So this in itself has huge potential to ensure that communities form themselves into groups which can take up and seize these opportunities that are presented through tourism, through the tourism value chain. It is for us as government to ensure that these products are funded and supported and monitored to ensure that there are incubators that can grow them from small businesses into medium and established enterprises. But it's also incumbent upon big businesses to ensure that they link up big big businesses with the township uh, products. Because when visitors visit the cities, it's, it's good that the cities have big established hotels. But those tour operators need to also link the tourists to townships so that the townships and rural areas will also benefit from the people that are visiting South Africa. So this is this presents uh, South African uh, municipalities as well as provincial departments with potential to grow the tourism products within uh, townships and rural areas. Earlier when we were speaking, you spoke about the impact of Airbnb, the fourth industrial revolution. And one of the, the key aspects of that dynamic and the dynamic of, of technology is that it makes us realize that we're all players in the global village. What role do you think those aspects are playing in terms of almost putting township tourism and rural tourism into the homes of foreign tourists? I think that this has presented rural and township tourism with a unique opportunity that needs to be seized. Because a tourist in London can actually, with a click of a button, find that a four-roomed ecstasy, they can be able to view the food that's there, they can be able to understand what happens uh, within that unique uh, tourism space. And when visiting South Africa, you know, with uh, Google and all the links, they can be able to navigate and find themselves into their tourism products. So we we, we actually encourage uh, the fourth industrial revolution to actually also impact positively to to products in townships. Because even in a rural area, with the use of a smartphone, somebody can interact with the rest of the world. So that makes access to the product very easy. It also links us to the global world, which we would want uh, to, uh, to ensure and promote. Because South Africa can't live or be isolated from the global space. We also want, with a click of a button, to understand what, what is a tourist who is anticipating visiting South Africa, wanting to experience when they come to South Africa. So then that makes our planning and strategies in line with what the tourists would want to experience. This has just presented ourselves as South Africa, our rural townships and our, our, our rural communities with opportunities to be able to engage 
with everybody on, or anyone that would want to visit their area. I think it's a fantastic initiative and it also speaks to the part that we have got to ensure that in order to participate on this global scale and this global level, that we have to ensure that our citizens are equipped and skilled with the right technology aptitudes. That also then talks to the department, especially Department of Communication, to ensure that there's broadband throughout our our townships and our our rural villages, because with a smartphone and with easy connectivity, our rural communities can be able to interact with the globe and the space. But then, without a proper communication, it becomes a problem. You know, I have to say that whenever I have these types of conversations, I'm always reminded that although you focus on a particular area, so in your instance, your niche is within the tourism space, the reality is that we work in an interconnected, integrated world and everything affects everything else. Yes, it's true. It's true, Doc, that each and every aspect of our interaction and our work, it connects to each and everyone in every space. So we need to ensure that there is interdepartmental and intergovernmental uh, relations that would ensure that we as government, the left hand talks to the right hand, so that when we do our work, we do not leave anybody. And as us, us as policymakers, to ensure that when we make legislation, the legislation does not have unintended consequences on the on another aspect, you know. So for us to talk to each other and ensure that when we ensure that the environment is conducive for citizens to be able to benefit, for business and partners to be able to benefit, and for the global communities to be able to interact and visit South Africa. Because when somebody wants to come and do business in South Africa, First and foremost, they become a tourist. They visit the country, be it, they, be it that they become a, a business tourist, and then they can also convert and become a leisure tourist. Yes, it's that experience. You want to test the waters. You want to know what the country's about. You want to know if it is going to be able to resource and equip your business effectively, what the legislation factors are if you choose to operate in this environment. Potentially, people can, in these days, as we've spoken, operate from anywhere in the world if you've got the right resources. Yeah, very true, Doc, because, you, you, you know, with the, with, with, with the globe that has opened so much and with us being able to connect with the globe, you can even sell a product from here, from your own village or from your own township, which might be needed by any, anyone else throughout the world. And you and, the, and and that's also true for the entire for the world that they can also want to invest in South Africa in a particular aspect that they would be interested in. But before they would even come to South Africa, they need to understand what is the environment, how are South Africans, and how do they, what are the policies, what are the regulations in that space, you know. So for us as, as policymakers, to, to ensure that the environment becomes conducive for potential investors and potential visitors to come through. And both of those have a a positive economic benefit. 
Today, we're talking to Ms. Luzizo Makubela Mashele, who is a Member of Parliament and currently serving as Chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Tourism. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Ms. Makubela Mashele, what I'd like to turn to is more of a personal perspective. Education is a key skill and resource which contributes to women's empowerment, both for the betterment of themselves as well as for their families. And when I look at your CV in the last few years, almost like clockwork, every year you have earned an additional qualification, whether it's your BA, honours in public administration, diplomas in finance, public relations. Can you tell us what role did education play in your life and career development? Well, Doc, I would say, I always say, you know, education is the immediate equalizer. Uh, I'm a woman born in a village uh, in Pumalanga, uh, one of the provinces that is on the far east, just on the border of uh, Mozambique and Switzerland. And I believe that education was the immediate equalizer for me because with education, I am able to understand how the globe operates. With education, I'm able to interact with other policymakers, be it in Africa, in, 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 elsewhere, in elsewhere in the parts of the country. I am able to, mostly, most importantly, interact with a, a reports, annual performance reports. I'm able to interpret financial reports of the department I'm able to see whether there's wasteful and uh, unwanted expenditure. I'm able to understand whether budgets were spent accordingly. I'm able to follow through and understand whether the budget is going to meet the objectives that are in the plan of the department. So I would, uh, I would say education is the immediate equalizer. It empowers you. It empowers a person to be able to have the, the, the requisite expertise to be able to interact uh, with whatever you are doing. And for me, it, it has helped me a lot with my financial background and my economics. It has made me understand and interpret the annual performance plans, the financial uh, plans of the department and its entities. You've definitely demonstrated how education has aided your career development and your general views of education, I think that's such a wonderful statement of it being an immediate equalizer. Do you think we're doing enough to promote education as a tool for women and young girls to really embrace and take the opportunities that it can produce for them? I think South Africa has made tremendous efforts to ensure that the girl child, first and foremost, is equal to the boy child. So South Africa has ensured that uh, many aspects of education does play a meaningful role to ensure that women are empowered. You know, South Africa even went to a point to say those that were previously disadvantaged, there must be something, a bridging gap to ensure that women in rural villages and townships are educated through adult learning. But most importantly, ensure that at the foundation phase, no child does not get the opportunity to 
educate themselves. And even went a step further, supplied many bursaries and to bridge in the gap between those that could pay for tertiary institutions and those that can't pay. So I believe that as a country, we have made tremendous strides in ensuring that girls are afforded an equal opportunity to the boys or to the men and ensure that when we compete, we want to compete at an equal footing. But there is still more that needs to be done because these go back to perceptions in the way that society has been structured, Doc. Because we know that we are still living in a patriarchal society that would prefer that the boy-child studies engineering over the girl-child studying engineering, you know, for an example. But with education being in the immediate equalizer and us promoting that the girl-child and the boy-child must start on an equal foot, it does empower our women to be able to get educated and ensure that they are, they are prepared for the, for, the, for the world. Frequently, when I look at this from a generational point of view, I always think that, let's say, relatively new mothers or, or mothers of, of, of today are more conscious about how they're socializing and bringing up their children, that they're really emphasizing the equality factors. So both, if you've got a, a boy and a girl, they're both going to do the dishes. They are both going to do gardening chores. There's no differentiation between what we, when we were growing up, used to be perceived as gender-based roles. As our program is all about gender equality and you've you've touched on the equal opportunity space, we definitely, in a a positive vein, are, are seeing that there's more and more of a global focus which looks at women's development. But at the same time, we have to see what have been some of the challenges as well as the successes in terms of women's legal rights over the last few years. So given what we've said now, do you think that in reality a 50-50 representation can be achieved? I, well, I think more still needs to be done. Because if you look at currently, we are saying women are afforded uh, the equal opportunities as men. But in real terms, we understand that the men still dominate the space in terms of careers, in terms of corporate, you know. If you just take a few uh, synopsis of the top CEOs in the country, you'd find that majority of them are still men. And then that now tells us that we still need, we still need more. We still need more to be done in that space, in every space. If you look at the career choices uh, that women and men choose, you'd find that uh, still patriarchy ensures that women look at the, look at the softer skills than to the hard skills that men. Uh, generally uh, are doing. But then the emphasis and the onus is upon us as society and as public representatives together with the women which, which, are, which are feminists to ensure that we even advocate 
even further than what we've done up until now. Because we've seen that as much as we say great strides have been done, Doc, but there's still more that needs to be done. Because the, the equation is still not balanced. If you look at like the top CEOs, you can even look at the top CEOs of banks, still more men are dominating that, that space than women. So what we need to do as feminists, because I'm speaking now as a feminist, from a feminist position, to say we still need to advocate even further. And speaking from a feminist position, and I would also say from public sector, I've always been really proud from a South African point of view on the representation of women that we have in cabinet. I stand to be corrected, but I think we have approximately 42% representation. And in terms of inter-parliamentary union statistics, we're, we're placed round about between 8th and 10th position in the world. So we're doing things right within the government and, and parliamentary space. And it would be wonderful if we could take some of those lessons and apply them into the private sector. Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely South Africa needs to be patted on the back for the enormous work that it has, di- it has done to bridge this uh, gender space between men and women representation in government and in the legislature. The, the, the governing party, which is the AMC, which I represent, ensures that in its list of representatives to parliament, there is a 50-50 representation, which has in itself, which must be commended in itself, and it has played a huge role in ensuring that women take up their rightful positions in government and in parliament uh, and in cabinet. But we we, we are still saying we are lagging behind when it comes to the private sector. And unfortunately, private sector works on on this model that you need to lobby them. You need to advocate and let them see the, the good side of, ensure, of making sure that uh, in their organogram there's a 50-50 representation. And what we can do as feminists is to lobby them and, sh- and show them that uh, when women, when, mo- when there's more representation uh, of women, we are actually uplifting our communities. But I still believe that women are still the caregivers. They're still the main caregivers. When you empower a woman, you are empowering somebody that nurtures and gives care to many. And nine times out of ten, she's probably the biggest consumer because she's either purchasing products for the household. Um, she's, a, she's a client of all of these corporates. Yes, she's a client. She goes and purchases food. She ensures that the house has enough budget. She ensures that uh, there's enough supply. She also shops for luxury items, you know. So women are the biggest consumers, if, if I would say. Uh, so they, 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 they are the main clients of the very same uh, industries and private sectors. So what we need to do as feminists, we need to also then show them these positive signs to say when you empower women, you, you are actually 
empowering people that would come back and and, and plow back to communities, but ensure that they buy back, they, they ensure that there's there's a ripple effect of what they what they get. Absolutely right. Now, throughout the different radio programs that we've had, one of the questions that I ask all my guests who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of of expertise is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. Some people will speak about hard work or uh, perseverance. Can you share with us what have been some of the key drivers to your success? You know, the key drivers to my success, or, well, I, I, I always say I'm still a, an aspiring aspiring person to be successful. I do not at any point see myself as a successful person, but I still need to work more hard as Doc to become successful. When I gauge myself, I always say I still need to do more. But what has assisted me as a woman growing up first and foremost from a township is to have positive role models. And to be, I started being an ac- activist in, in youth movement to ensure that whatever, whatever happens, be it in a community, because we, 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 communities tend to operate and leave the youth behind and not want to hear the voices of the youth. So what I have done in my space is I've advocated that whatever happens, uh, young people need to be taken along. And in so doing, I, because I owe to being taken along myself. There were old people who took me along, who showed me, who pointed to me the positive signs and the positive uh, aspects of life. So I would then say I owe my success to the positive role models that played a a role in my life. One of them would be my, my, my dad, my father. My father is, was the kind of person that would show you, uh, first, before he shows you the wrong stuff that you have done, he would show, point you the positive things that you have done and encourage you from showing you the good things that you have done. And at the end, would say, but in doing the things that you've done correct, there were things that you did not do correct. Hence, these ones must be corrected. You know, I always say that has inspired me to to be able to, you know, when you are so encouraged and only to find out that it's only at the, at the tail end when you are pointed out the things that you did not do correct. You want to ensure that, no, next time when he speaks to me, there aren't anything that are not correct in my CV or in my space or in, in the way I conduct, them, conduct myself. So I owe my success to the positive role models that have come before me. Your dad sounds like a great teacher. Yeah, in fact, he's, he's one of the most wonderful teachers. Because before he, he even at today, before he points to you the, the incorrect things that you've done, he will go with you to town and show you all the good things that you've done. And by the time you think, yo, I have outdone myself, I am so proud of myself, then he would then point out to say, but also there was this aspect which you could have done better, you know? 
In, in a way, I think that that teaching in itself was positive in a way because it was not reprimanding in a sense but trying to encourage you not to do things incorrectly so. So he was a very positive role model to, to myself and my siblings. What would you say has been the best lesson you've learned? Okay, the best lessons I've learned in life is to ensure that you you do not fall down when you have erred or when you have failed. To always, in all situations, pick yourself up. I know it's very difficult. At times you get a, a blow and you feel like giving up. And while wanting to give up, there's always the inner voice within you that says, when you started this, you wanted to achieve something. And that has been the greatest lesson to me, to say, in whatever the circumstances, in whatever the situation, giving up is not an option. You can either deter or reroute, but never give up on what you have started. Because when you are when you are preparing supper or when you are baking a cake, you don't stop halfway before you you have put everything together and you have put all your ingredients and all the paste in the oven. You want to get the end result is you want to have a, a piece of cake which you've baked for yourself. And up until you have not completed all the processes that need to happen when baking a cake, it means you, you are not done. I think that's a great analogy. You can't, you can't have a cake that's half-baked. Yes. Now, lastly, as we close out the show today, could you please share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to share with young ladies listening to us on the continent? Well, I would say there are a few words that I would, I would want to share with young ladies, young women, even older women uh, in this continent, is that success in itself is not, success does not come as a surprise or come as a, as a once-off event. Success is the sum of small efforts that you repeat day in and day out. So in our quest to become successful, understand that it's not an overnight thing. You need, you need to put in efforts each and every day. Repeat those efforts. If you are studying, it means you have to go through the modules from module 1 up until module 8 or module 10 for you to get a qualification. So success is just the sum of all the small efforts that you repeat day in and day out to become successful. I would want to encourage young women and even older women to say success is just not an overnight event. Success, you build on success. You repeat your, your positive actions and ultimately the end goal will be success. That is a wonderful message of perseverance. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Doc. It was lovely uh, speaking on women issues.
We wish you all the very best in your career, and I'm sure there's another module of study that's on your agenda. It is. I'm going through my master's uh, degree, and uh, um, actually my research proposal is in the space of tourism, as I am in that space currently as as as, as a legislator. So my topic is um, I'm, I'm studying whether does township tourism create the much-needed jobs that, they, that is perceived. So I want to understand that within a space, if you bring in a product in a township, does the ripple effect create meaningful and decent jobs? That's such a practical topic. Thank you, Doc. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Ms. Luzizo Makubela Marchele, who is a Member of Parliament, currently serving as Chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Tourism.